And um, you are right. I shouldn't be appearing here in front of you. Nick was supposed to be back, but he seems to have had flights cancelled left, right and centre. And consequently, um, we have to fill in and I don't see how... How, how the poor man's going to get back. And America is a notorious place for being thrown off aeroplanes. Um, but needless to say, we are going to deal with tangentially with aeroplanes. Um, and it's, it's, I don't know, I'd say that perhaps the story of the lifetime. President Ramaphosa goes to Ukraine and Russia via Poland and his support team in the hastily hired SAA plane, which comprises 100 security men, about 11 journalists, and 12 crates of arms, handguns and other. Uh, the Poles said, oh, no, you didn't, you know, we have no, no paperwork for this. Uh, they don't accept sort of photocopied, sent by fax, sent by uh, cell phone versions. Um, you're not... Uh, not coming in. Um, and Wally Ruder, who is uh, Ramaphosa's head of security, complained that the Poles only spoke to them in Polish. So 26 hours later, that plane was turned around and sent back while Cyril was going to Kiev and Moscow, seemingly in, in fine shape without having anyone uh, personally threaten him, but that, that doesn't leave much uh, open in that regard. Because his, his spokesman on that trip said, denied that the delegation had had to be sent back to their hotel because of missile strikes from Russia. The press reports I've read said they had to, you know, there were, press, there were uh, missile strikes in Russia at about, at that time towards Kiev. So I would have thought that would just make considerably great experience in the world of pol of international politics but not according to the uh, not according to Cyril's spokesman Michael you um, broke the story for the uh, for the daily friend for the IRR on Friday because you happened to be up at the sort of wee hours of the morning and happened to come across this coincidentally um, is this an embarrassment or are we the victims of an international conspiracy? <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I certainly don't think it's a, an international conspiracy. It's yeah, uh, profoundly embarrassing, really, when, when one looks at, at all the detail. Um, I, I must say right from the, right from the, from the outset that um, all credit for my being alerted to the, uh, to the incident comes uh, or goes to uh, Peter Detoy, the assistant editor of investigations at News24, who is actually on the plane. Um, and you know, given his experience and uh, and his years in in the job, he clearly saw a, a good story as it was brewing. Um, and from his very first tweet, uh, one becomes aware of a you know journalist keeping his ears and eyes open and and finding out where you know the the literally the scale of the disaster as it as it unfolded. Um, and he has in in his reporting ever since uh, provided us with um, with the kind of great insights and uh, you know little details like the fact that this plane, um, which in a sense went nowhere so kind of flew all the way there and flew all the way back and none of the people on board <laughs> did what they were supposed to be doing except Peter Detoy. Um cost the taxpayers something like 14 to 16 million uh, so it's really quite an extraordinary thing his piece um, was that today let me just see the date seven hours ago early this morning Peter Detoy's piece on uh, on News 24 
um, begins by saying it would be easy to dismiss, as many have done, the folly that was the European misadventures of President Ramaphosa's security personnel with a giggle and a grin before moving on to more important matters. Uh, and yet he says, you know, they, although there are indeed more important matters, not least uh, the NHI bill being passed by the National Assembly last week, profound disaster in the making if ever there was one, um, he goes on to make the case that this actually represents exactly what is wrong, uh, what is wrong in the country, um, and a, a kind of provides an anatomy of the dis disaster in the making that is that is ANC rule. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I mean there are lots of other aspects of this we 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 get to discuss, but you know it's quite clear from the outset this was a, a shambles, shambolic thing affair. Well, I, I, I think Peter Tutu is right. It's it's the sort of extraordinarily, apparently clumsy set of, of circumstances that, you know, South Africa shouldn't be getting itself into. I mean, it's, it's, they've had 30 years of experience with it, but we're also not clear about which who is controlling what. And I would have thought in, that the uh, Ministry of International Affairs or Foreign Affairs, I keep forgetting what it's actually called, and cooperation would ultimately be the ministry that would hold everything together. So every other ministry that might be involved uh, or department would would have to coalesce under the um, and, and under the under the headship of 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 uh, Naledi Pandor and her colleagues. And yet, it seems to have literally taken off in, in a range of range of different tangents. Um, I mean the. Two things, perhaps, Morris, I can get your view on. The one is um, that, you know, it seems to be, it's, it was like a, a supercharged light, a blue light brigade. The, the number of people involved in security was huge. Um, the, I don't know what they thought the, uh, the, the Poles would do with their weapons, because very often when people do travel, um, not only is the security provided by the host nation, but very often security will be disarmed, so to speak. Um, so here we have a hundred people with guns. Um, I would be—I think I would be pretty pissed off if, if I were if I were a member of uh, of the Polish authorities. But Wally Ruder, the security chief, has has complained that the Poles were in fact being racist. Uh, towards South Africa and about you know about the circumstances. Your views on the size of the security and whether the Polish response was racist? Well, I think uh, this can actually be linked to the NHR, and it shows how the South African government and the ANC are captured by magical thinking. So yes. nobody knows how we're going to pay for the NHR, but you know Joe Pachla and Nicholas Crisp just say it's going to happen, and will something will happen. Same with uh, this uh, taking all these crates of arms to uh, to Europe. It'll sort itself out when we get there, when we get there. There's no no plan has been made. Like this is what okay if they want to take arms. I mean, I'm sure most. I'm sure when uh, Joe Biden travels overseas, I'm sure his uh, entourage is armed and so on. So, but I'm sure he does. You know, American governments will do things properly. People will the correct permits will be um, you know. Uh, Secured and so on. So uh, it seems also another issue was that uh, the plane wasn't even supposed to land in Warsaw. It was supposed to land in another part of Poland. That was a town that starts with uh, an R. I can't remember mm -hmm. uh, what, what the town was called. So it was also nothing was done properly. You know, obviously the correct permits weren't uh, secured in, uh, to 
in the beginning. And the issue of racism, I mean, this is obviously something that's quite hard to prove. And I was thinking, would this kind of thing happen to uh, a leader? Say, you know, would this happen to the Australian Prime Minister or Emmanuel Macron, the President of France or whatever? And I don't think it would. And I think what happens is entourage. But also, it wouldn't happen because the proper procedures would have been followed. You know, I'm sure the uh, Andy Albanese, the, the Prime Minister of Australia, wouldn't arrive in Poland. First, his plane wouldn't go to the wrong airport. And he wouldn't rock up with, uh, you know, 100 security personnel and all kinds of uh, rifles and so on in, uh, in the hold. So... You know, as I said, it's hard to prove or disprove one of these kinds of things, but uh, I'm always a bit skeptical of, you know, shouting racism if there's not really any proof of it. And I think this is one of those issues. And if all the, uh, if everything had been followed as it should have been, everybody wouldn't let off the plane. You know, the things would have gone off smoothly, but obviously they weren't. We cut corners as a South African government, and I think South Africans in general like to do. And things weren't done properly. And now we're sitting with the situation, and South Africa's a laughing stock for the world, a stock of the world. Uh, I saw Ryan Kutsia, who used to be um, uh, quite involved with the DA and so on. Uh, I think he was a DA MP. I think he lives in the UK now. He said, uh, normally, like, you know, he's got uh, his UK Twitter, you know, people who, uh, British people who comment on various things around the world. He said they, you know, nobody ever really comments on South Africa, but now there's been a lot of commenting on South Africa. And I think, you know, the, South Africa is now getting known around the world. If if people talk about South Africa, it's because there's no electricity or because the president uh, of the country has been detained in Poland or whatever the case is. You know, people don't talk about South Africa and think about a successful country that's doing things properly. They think about a place that's a shambles and falling apart. Yeah. Um, Michael, it strikes me two things. One is that um, it's perhaps a, a sign of maybe there's some bizarre inferiority complex or insecurity that we have these large displays of power. Um, mm. And particularly in, the con in this context, I mean, a blue light brigade pissing us off on a, on a motorway is very different to getting to Poland and causing a diplomatic incident. Um, I, I, think, I think what's particularly worrying about this is, first of all, you know, they had all these arms that, from one report I read, said, you know, really to protect the president in case of, you know, of war. And I thought, he's got to be kidding. Um, and, and, and then the other is the, the, the surrounding themselves with way too much uh, paraphernalia. It doesn't reflect our importance as a nation. Um, I mean, Joe Biden, and there are lots of criticisms about, uh, about him in many respects. He went to Poland not that long ago, successfully spoke in front of an old castle by the looks of things, very impressive. Um, as as Mario said, you know, this is just not going to be the sort of thing that's the, 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 that a country, particularly like ours, which has more almost more overseas missions than any other, would be doing at this stage. And it's it's it it does it gives it gives one an impression of incompetence, insecurity, uh, failure to understand the nuance of of, of international politics. Maybe it is the ultimate display of what is wrong with the way mm. the ANC is in the country. Yeah, I think, think I think you're absolutely right. Uh, one has the impression of a, a profound superiority illusion, if you like, um, mm. a party that believes its importance is far far greater than it actually is, has completely yeah. perceived the context in which it's operating, the objectives it it, it claims it wants to reach. Um, and, and 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 in this way, in fact, it distracts attention from from all the things it says are, are most important, 
to all the things that are, you know, a disaster and either completely trivial and frivolous um, or just plain unnecessary. Um, so, so I think I think you're absolutely right. Have this huge security entourage um, says something about uh, the, the 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 actual insecurity, in fact, of this poor little state trying to sort of pretend that it's it's up there with with all, all the big guys and that it's capable of, of of sort of joining in and and making some meaningful contribution and yet all it manages to do is to illustrate or or, or, or demonstrate its its own you know a lack of of capacity um I'm just looking at at at, at Peter Dottori's phrasing again. He he refers initially to the you know the the rolling shambles, which I think is what it is. But you know it's the government's own portrayal of itself as as seemingly as having seemingly completely lost the ability to project manage even mildly complicated endeavours because this isn't after all for a state. This shouldn't be a, a, a complicated business. You you work with the host country. You clarify all the, the basic fundamentals: security, move tra movements, travel, who's doing what, who's responsible for what, who's meeting when and where. Uh, these things, you know, state departments and, and foreign affairs departments of diplomats are doing all the time. Not very difficult, um, and yet, you know, we managed to make a complete mess of it. And then, on top of that, to be uh, to behave with such arrogance instead of you know just piping down trying to resolve it we end up uh, accusing uh, Poland of being racist because uh, they're simply doing their jobs and they're clearly a little bit alarmed um, they refer to unidentified persons and dangerous goods you know this is like clearly going into a, a kind of war zone and, and living on the edge of a war zone they have good reason to be to be anxious also anxious about where exactly south africa stands um and, and south africa's antipathy to the west and to america and so on it's friendliness to russia these are all obviously compounding factors but you know for south africa then to turn around and say well this is racist behavior is just completely silly and makes us seem all the more silly um uh, so perhaps, yeah. perhaps just just mm. to tack on to that and mm. um it's like that the other three African heads of state who went there from Uganda, from Senegal, and from Zambia, mm. their delegations were much, much smaller. They had they had none of these problems. So they they were no one accused the Poles of being racist to them. Um, and also the, 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 the crucial thing is all three of them have, I suppose what one could call a genuinely neutral stand on this war for for self reasons of self-interest. I mean, I suspect that they fairly appalled by the invasion, but they need Russia, and Russia's been making huge uh, entrees into, into Africa in general, and the grain is, is, is very, very important. Um, in, it, it, to me, that, that kind of really aggravates the behaviour of, of the South African government. I mean, it shows us up compared to what would be considered, let's say, a little more lightweight African countries. We were supposed to be the heavyweight once. We aren't anymore. Yeah. Um, they, in a way, they showed us up just by doing the right thing. Oh. Yes, I think so. Marius, I'm sure you have a insight into that. Too. Yeah, I think uh, South Africa is not the heavyweight it used to be. I don't think I mean, we're still the second or third biggest economy in Africa. But that's also changing. If you look at uh, the African economies are growing, I think current trends yeah. You know, a place like Kenya will probably overtake us pretty soon. And the fact even that we're in BRICS is uh, 
we, we probably shouldn't be there. There are other countries that have much bigger economies that are much more influential. And South Africa is also throwing away any kind of influence that it, that it does have. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that South Africa has to move in lockstep with uh, US or Western foreign policy, but we seeming to, you know, going against what, uh, what, what the West uh, would, I don't know, would prefer or say as even against our own interests, uh, like things like Goa and so on. As I say, we don't have to agree with the West on everything, but I think there has been elements of real politica. If if uh, the um, US kicks us out of Goa, I don't think it's going to be the disaster that uh, many other people think, but it's definitely going to cost South Africa and it's going to cost uh, jobs and so on. And the West is, uh, uh, you know, Western countries in general are a much bigger trading partner of us uh, than um, Russia is. And also, the kind of aid that South Africa gets uh, for all kinds of things from the West, it's, you know, it's magnitudes larger than what we get from Russia. Yeah. So just from and just the elements of self-interest, it doesn't really mm. make sense that South Africa is such a supporter of Russia. And even going back to the historic um, ties between uh, the ANC and Russia, that uh, might uh, all be well and good. But uh, let's not forget that the Ukraine was all Ukraine, or not the Ukraine, was part of the Soviet Union. So there's also those kinds of historic ties. And at the end of the day, South Africa is uh, basically a rounding area when it comes to the global economy. And we do seem to have a you know, bit of a... Uh, uh, we, we think we're more important than we are. And I think that's a hangover of when South Africa was quite a, very, uh, in, uh, a big big news story in around the world in the 90s when we were going through the transition and so on. That's obviously changed. And South Africa is definitely not as important as it used to be. Uh, I would imagine if you're in any big city in the world and you go speak to people who are fairly well informed and you're asking the president of South Africa, is they wouldn't be able to tell you, I don't think. Mm. I think that's right. And it's, and it's uh, to use our dreaded word, segues very nicely, Michael, into... Mm article Terence Corrigan wrote um, uh, for this morning, I think, in this morning's uh, Daily Friend. Um, and it, it's, it's essentially, the title is The Illusion is Ending, and This is Good. And the essence of what he's saying is that we are at the, probably the lowest point we've been since the transition. Um, and a case could even be made that it is worse now than it was in the years preceding the transmission. Give a transition, given the despair um, that 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 had arisen from 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 an apartheid from an apartheid government, um, I I'm sort of certainly very inclined to to agree with them because I think it also it me it it it, it helps to diminish to some extent the ANC, the myth of the ANC because the victor always writes history and the ANC certainly did. Um, but it, it 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 piggybacks that realization that that re, realism piggybacks on all the dreadful legislation that's been passed recently, mm. capped by this event. Um, do you think he's got it? Yeah, <clears throat> I think so. Um, and it's a very interesting piece. I, I highly recommend um, that, that uh, viewers and listeners uh, pay it, uh, give it, give it a read. Um, it is the main piece today on, on the Daily Friend. Um, just, you know, a, a number of points that I'm just, just picking out. He, he singles out somebody like Peter Bruce, who began as a, uh, the beginning of, of uh, prison run as a presidency as a cheerleader and somebody who thought, you know, this chap really is, is going to make all the difference post Zuma era. Here's, uh, you know, a new, a new vision and a new dawn and so on. <clears throat> and there was that whole we are led um, narrative that became very strong, especially during the early days of, of COVID. 
and that's all you know that's all that's all gone away and very strikingly as Terence points out Bruce wrote last week that you know it it'd be far more effective um for uh, for business to, to to kind of get together and fund any opposition to the ANC, just get the ANC out of power. That, that would be its most effective contribution to solving South African problems, not working with the ANC, but simply funding uh, any kind of opposition to get it out. It's really striking. But the other striking one um, was a quotation from Eusebius MacKaiser, um, who apparently just before he died, made a remark where he said, you know, kind of words where he said um, that we need to normalize mentioning the name ANC when telling stories about the economic and deeply personal impact of blackouts. And he was talking about load shedding, obviously, and, and ESCOM. Um, and that, you know, he, he, he said that these are foreseeable, all these uh, the, the problems with energy uh, generation and so on. Foreseeable consequences of corruption, state capture, technocratic ineptitude, and unethical and ineffectual leadership by the ANC misled government. Make it a habit to tie the story of ESCOM to the ANC. That's really striking for somebody like Eusebius MacKaiser. Um, and Terence then goes on to make the point that, um, as he says in his final lines, the illusions uh, of an ANC-driven revival, or the illusion of an ANC-driven revival, is dead. Uh, we can count on this. It remains for those of us committed to a future uh, for South Africa to, to say this openly and to act accordingly. Um, and it doesn't mean, I mean, as he pointed out in this piece and, and elsewhere, uh, Terence has written very considerably on the, the problems of creating a, a new civil service effectively, which is what we'd have to do. It doesn't mean that the solution is, uh, is one election away, but at least the illusion that uh, the solution is going to come from the ANC has uh, has now been eroded away uh, by the ANC itself, chiefly. Um, and this is a good thing. You know, we need to get over the, the kind of sentimentalizing, romanticizing idea that we can always somehow patch up the ANC. It's always going to be there. It's always going to be doing, you know, the people's work and so on. That's that's now uh, receiving rapidly. Mm -hmm. Um. Morris, I think I think what what was most striking, one of the things that was most striking about Terence's article is that he sort of reminds us of the sheer extent of his support, um, which was measured very highly in percentage terms, um, well over 60% originally, and the support he had from the, the public private sector. They saw him as the businessman, they saw him as the as the person who would lead us away from the terrible years of Jacob Zuma. And yet, you know, it took it probably took a bit long to ask the questions, well, where was he? Because in the four years prior to his becoming president, he was the deputy president of the country. So he was Jacob Zuma's 2RC. Um, were we just desperately hoping for something better? Um, or were we justified in having that in, in having that elevated view of him? Yeah, I think, uh, obviously, Saramaposa... He's, he seems to have a bit more gravitas than somebody like uh, Jake Zuma. But as you say, I think a lot of his, uh, the aura around him was kind of uh, not really based in reality. Uh, he did pretty well in the business world, but uh, it's, he's not uh, not somebody who built a business himself. He was given shares and uh, positions as part of, uh, you know, the uh, broad BE and uh, all that kind of thing. He's not like, say, somebody like a Patrice Motsepe or even a Herman Mashaba, somebody who's built up a business. And and there's, I mean, there's 
many examples of uh, black South African businessmen who've done, done very well for themselves. And I don't actually think Sarah Maposa is one of them. But yeah. uh, let's also not get, uh, I'm open to correction here, but I think he's also been on the NEC for, uh, from the, the 1990s. So he's always been somebody who's been involved in uh, the internal governance of the ANC. And he, as, it seems that he, he was never really pushing back against the worst excesses of the Zoom administration. As you point out, he was deputy president from 2014 and deputy president of the party itself from 2012, I think it was. So he's been somebody who's always been involved in there and he was the head of the Qaeda Diplomat uh, Committee. So he's not somebody who's, you know, he wasn't like the little boy in the dark uh, with his finger against this uh, tide of corruption that's going to come in. Uh, and uh, But I think a lot of people just, they saw this person who, they, they probably saw a man, this is somebody that they can work with, you know, somebody who has been in boardrooms. And where, whereas I think Jacob Zuma, for all his faults, I think he was probably somebody that was seen as, you know, a bit of a country bumpkin and some of a bit more traditionalist views and so on. People thought, you know, like, and people who are running businesses and so on, he's like, oh, he's kind of a guy we don't really understand. Where Sora Maposa would be somebody, you know, he's, he's one of us. He'll, he'll sit and have a whiskey with us and, you know, talk about uh, sending the kids to St. Stithians and watching polo on the manicured lawns of the Nanda Club or whatever the case, it is, the case is. And clearly it came out that he wasn't. I think Sora Maposa in some ways is better than Jacob Zuma. In other ways, he's, he's worse. And Probably Jacob Zuma has been somebody who could control the ANC much more than uh, uh, Sarah Maposa did, especially in the initial parts of his uh, leadership of the ANC, until it became clear that it wasn't, uh, you know, tenable to keep uh, Jacob Zuma on as uh, president anymore when uh, when he was turfed out uh, at, at the end of 2017 and uh, his ally and Limini Zuma lost as well. So I think, yeah, there was a lot of aura around, Zuma, uh, around Ramaphosa that wasn't really... Um, uh, you know, justified, but and, and I think it's all become pretty clear now. He's not somebody who's um, managed to get a grip on the party or on, on the country, and we, I think, suffering a lot of those consequences. And I think a lot of the stuff that's probably happening with the government is uh, in the government is happening without uh, uh, Ramaphosa's knowledge. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if if the lady R was land was loaded with arms. I wouldn't be surprised if it was loaded with arms and Ramaphosa didn't know anything about it. But I also wouldn't be surprised if it was loaded with arms and he did know about it. And also be surprised if it wasn't loaded with arms and there's all kinds of just, you know, finger pointing yeah. and the fog sort of thing, you know? <laughs> you, you muted, Sarah. Yeah. Mm. Apologies, I was trying to keep some flying aeroplane thing <laughs> out of my microphone. Um, mm. I think perhaps what, what we tend to forget about or underestimate is Cyril Ramaphosa and Jacob Zuma shared one facet. They're both very charming men. And you can get away with a lot with charm. Um, I think I've said it before. I mean, one of, one of, I read one, one biography of, uh, of Joseph Stalin. And comment that always made an impact on me is that the, for the party, it wasn't his tyranny. Uh, or his aggression that was that was fearsome. It was his charm, hmm. and I think uh, I, I think uh, sometimes the, the advantage of not having charm is that you kind of know where you stand. And I don't think we've known with either president we've known where we've stood. Uh, but Marcus, hmm. to sort of come sort of along those lines, but in a, in a in a different sphere, has been uh, comments made by Uzi Mamuso, who. Uh, so I've suddenly forgotten which uh, which uh, 
she gets business up unity South Africa, I think. Business unity, I can have yeah. business unity or business leadership. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she's commenting about the NHI and, the, and essentially the potential disaster that is NHI. And if anyone hasn't read it, have a look at Chris Barron's. You know, he has that little art, that little piece. He always asks a question of a, of a, of, of a, of, of a celebrity or a politician, and, and then and, and see how the hell how they answer him. And he asks Nicholas Crisp, who is the deputy director general of of the NHI, who's the the guy charged with creating and putting this thing together. And it is the most astonishing piece. I mean. The, the apparent ignorance, arrogance, or sheer, I don't care about you guys, one way or the other, and particularly towards the private sector, is quite is quite astonishing. And Buzi Mavusa has always had a, had a sort of forthright reputation. I mean, both on ESCOM and on other things, she's not she's not a, a, a shrinking violet, but she seems to feel that. Too little has been said by too few people too softly about the disaster that is the or the, the, the potential disaster that is the NHI. Is she being fair to her? No, I don't think so. Yeah, in a in an article, people on Reddit, it's in News Twenty Four today, which says she's been surprised by the uh, how people have been about NHI. Uh, I find that a bit uh, strange. As, uh, our organisation has been quite vocal, and so have many others. Sarkalicha and um, Solidarity has come out, the DA has come out, and, uh, you know, the, uh, Intellidex, who's, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a markets analysis company, uh, and lots of other journalists, uh, Sam Kokeli, I think he wrote something this weekend, talking mm -hmm. about what a disaster mm -hmm. is going to be. So it's, you know, it's been coming from almost every quarter, and I've seen actually very little of uh, people who've come out to defend the NHR. But just on uh, Nicholas Crisp and Joe Pachler, what's been for uh, me the, the most astonishing about it is when talking about how we're going to pay for it. And they just blithely say, we are, oh, we're just going to increase VAT or, you know, or, you know, the, the current uh, voluntary contributions that people make to be part of medical aid schemes, you know, that's going to become actually a tax. And it's actually bizarre. I mean, this is people's after-tax money that, and to increase VAT is actually, it's, it's incredibly cruel. It's the most uh, regressive tax that you can get because it t eats up more poorer people's incomes than people in higher incomes. And we just say, blah, they say, okay, let's increase VAT to 20%. You know, that, that means it's, it's going to cost people more money and it's go that's going to come from uh, food and so on. And as you know, people on lower incomes, you know, they spend more money on food and transport and so on. That's people going to be affected. And even apart from that, just to blithely say now that three or four thousand or five thousand rand or even more that you pay, you know, especially all the people that they I know they pay up to ten grand a month for uh, uh, medical mm -hmm. aid and so on. Just to blithely say this is going to become your voluntary contribution is going to become a, a, a compulsory one, and you're going to have no say on it. I mean, I, I pay my voluntary medical aid every month. It's voluntary, and I can tomorrow if I decide for whatever reason because I can't afford it anymore. Or I want to, you know, spend the money on, you know, drugs and, uh, you know. Uh, drawing or whatever that case is, that's my decision. And you can decide to stop paying that tomorrow. And it's just bonkers that people's money is seen as this, you know, this kind of thing that belongs to the government, doesn't belong to people. Um, Michael, just in a, in a minute, um, because we've essentially run out of time, um, <clears throat> the thing about the NHI and the fiddling with people's health is that it's almost, that's a stretch too far. It's, it's the one thing that people will 
desperately, desperately avoid having done to them if they can. It, maybe we'll even see something as, as, as sort of drastic as a tax boycott. We could. We could. Um, I mean, I think where, where I, 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 I certainly agree with Morris, there's a range of organizations have been very vocal and so on, but I think where Mavuse where, um, could be correct is in the sense that one doesn't get an idea that the public is out there on the streets making exactly the point that you're making. You're touching us on the one thing that is a step too far. And there's a reason why they're not doing that. And she says... Well, she, her interpretation is that many people have simply, simply given up caring about it. They know the emperor is wearing no clothes, but scarcely anyone considers that remarkable. And I think, in a way, that's, that's what Terence is also saying, the illusion is gone. But there is also, and I agree with, with Morris here, both of you on, on this, is that there's also risk in this, is that we become complacent. And we, we don't appreciate that precisely because of the charm of somebody like Cyril Ramaphosa and the, the party he leads, and he embodies the party. He he's makes he goes to great lengths to, to to demonstrate that he embodies the party. He's he, he's happy with everything he does and says, and um, that he is this charming figure. How how is he? He's not going to harm us. He's not going to destroy our healthcare, surely. And this that is the, that's exactly the risk I think. On on that very dangerous note. <laughs> uh, Pardon us for going a bit over time, and uh, I'm not entirely sure. I think who's I don't, I don't know who's Morris. If it's you who's hosting tomorrow, um, in light of the sudden change of arrangements given Nicholas's plight, but I hope you'll join us then. And uh, in any event, read us every day in the Daily Friend, dailyfriend.co.za, and we will enlighten and delight you. I promise. Mm -hmm. Cheers.